So good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Thursday Night Teachings. So let's begin with our uh, motivation tonight. So let's recall the advantages we have with our precious human life, the fortune to meet the Dharma, meet teachers, have supportive communities, have enough to eat so that we can practice. So we can really appreciate everything we have going for us. But at the same time, let's realize that the whole situation is very fragile because things are changing moment by moment. We know that we're impermanent and that death will come. But we don't know when. So between now and when that moment comes, let's really make the determination to use our lives wisely, use our time and energy in ways that are going to produce positive results for others, for ourselves. In order to do that, of course, we have to kind of get ourselves out of our self-centered attitude that just thinks about my happiness now. Really broaden it and extend it to all sentient beings. Really caring about what happens to all. Let's really expand our mind and cultivate this aspiration for full Buddhahood, no matter how long it takes, because we know that that's the best way to bring about happiness and benefit for ourselves and others. Let's generate that motivation tonight. First of all, the sources that I used for this talk tonight um, comes from Geshe Sopa and Yangtze Rinpoche and Alex Burzen and, of course, Venerable Children. So the last four weeks we've been uh, weaving through Lam Rim topics and we've finished the initial scope. And so we learned about precious human life, impermanence of things, Refuge, and then working with karma and its effects. Geshe Sopa writes that by the time you reach this stage, this initial stage, your practice should be based on a recollection of death and an awareness of the misery you will experience if you have not prepared properly for that inevitable event. So as we meditate on this, we begin to develop an attitude that turns away from the ordinary affairs of uh, this life 
and aspires for precious human life. So the method of obtaining a precious human rebirth is taking refuge in the three jewels, gaining a certainty about the cause and effect of karma. And as Venerable Children says, by gaining a firm understanding of the meditations in common with the initial level practitioner, we begin to change our attitudes and behavior. As a result, we are happier, we get along better with others, and in addition, we prepare so we can die peacefully and have a good rebirth. And now as we go deeper into Dharma practice, we see that while preparing for our future lives is good, it doesn't free us from cyclic existence altogether. As long as we are reborn in cyclic existence, our lives will remain entirely under the control of delusions and karma. And even if we succeed in obtaining a comfortable rebirth in a happy realm, that life too will eventually come to an end. And once again, we face the possibilities of following into a lower realm. And I think too, if we think about our, uh, if we have precious human rebirths, if we just think about going through this whole process again and again, it's actually kind of dreadful (laughs) that we have to start over. And especially if we think about our spiritual path. So in this life, we study and over some years gain some understanding, some work really hard, get a certain level of concentration, certain level of compassion, and then we're reborn again. And although it might be a little easier next time because the habits we've laid down, we really have to go through all the stages again. And then to actually reach the point of where we are in this life, and then, you know, hopefully... Uh, go further. And then also, in every lifetime, we're going to have disturbing emotions. We're going to have moods that go up and down. We're going to be angry. We're going to be craving. And all of the other afflictions will be with us. So when we start thinking about it deeply, it's quite a huge waste of time, actually. Yeah. And so in this intermediate scope, we're striving for liberation from all future rebirths to get out of suffering completely. We want to cut off all rebirths conditioned by karma and afflictions. And as Geshe Sopa says, even if we are reborn in a comfortable life, it is merely a temporary respite within an endless cycle of uncontrolled rebirth. And he gives this great analogy It is as if a person who is falling from a high cliff were to think, Ah, this is quite comfortable. I don't feel any pain at all. I'm enjoying this pleasurable sensation of flying. (laughs) And so, of course, you know, within a very short amount of time, this person's going to crash. So this is a big mistake. (laughs) It's not pleasure. It's only a moment of respite before a bad end. And so in the same way, a comfortable rebirth is nothing more than a brief intermission in the constant cycling through miserable, uncontrolled existence. 
And I think if we really deeply think about how we think there's happiness in cyclic existence, that's quite a lot of proof of our ignorance, of our not knowing. We grasp at the slightest joyful moment and imagine this as real happiness. We create all kinds of actions out of attachment and aversion, trying desperately to cling on to that fleeting moment of peace. And by those actions, actually, we only create more and more unhappiness in the future. We've believed in worldly goals, such as material possessions, fame, pleasure of the senses, to be some kind of ultimate satisfaction. And we're so attached to this really low-level happiness that we often sacrifice our entire lives to attain these things. And so this habitual projection of unreal expectations on worldly objects is the real problem. And the antidote to this habitual mistaken way of thinking is to meditate on suffering. So again, Geshe Sopa writes, when we practice the antidote by meditating on the faulty nature of samsaric attractions, we are then concentrating on their real nature. There is no imputation of false qualities. Ordinarily, we see impure things as pure, impermanent things as permanent, and objects whose nature is to bring suffering as sources of happiness. If we do not meditate on the suffering nature of worldly happiness, we will continue to impute attractive qualities onto impure objects. Our attachment will increase. Our ignorance will thicken. And we will continue on this wheel of cyclic existence. So it's really important that we get really clear about what this cycle of existence actually entails. And of course this is not easy because we've been cycling around in this existence since beginning this time. It's really all we know. But if we do not see the faults of a particular type of experience, we will not think of it as suffering and we won't have any desire to be rid of it. So the Buddhist teachings are all aimed at helping us get rid of suffering and problems. And the method that is used is to get rid of problems is to discover their true causes and to get rid of those causes so that they no longer produce suffering. Now this is based on a conviction that it's possible to remove those causes in a way that they never occur again. And so we train in the middle scope of the Lom Rim to develop this type of mind, a way of understanding that will completely counter and eliminate the cause of our problems. And so this is the teachings of the Four Noble Truths, the first most basic teaching that the Buddha gave. These Four Noble Truths describe the unsatisfactory situation of uncontrolled rebirth in which we are presently caught, and then describes as well our potential for liberation and happiness.
So tonight I'm going to focus mostly on the first noble truth, the truth um, of unsatisfactory conditions. But the second truth is that these unsatisfactory conditions have causes. Those causes are attachment, ignorance, anger, and all the other disturbing attitudes. And then as well as the karma that we create under their influence. And then just to round out the, all of the noble truths, and the third noble truth is that we can cease these unsatisfactory condition and their causes. And then the fourth noble truth is the path to practice to bring about this liberation. And so when we think about the sequence of these truths that the Buddha talked about, that he taught, He talked about dukkha first, or suffering, or unsatisfactoriness first. And he did that because we really have to face our present situation and look at its causes so we can be motivated to transform our circumstances. Because we're quite mm, foggy about that. It's not so clear. And so when we think about liberation, or the other word that's used is renunciation of dukkha, so when we're cultivating that, we're aiming for uh, liberation, not enlightenment. So this means that we overcome this uncontrollably recurring rebirth so that we're no longer under the influence of disturbing emotions and karma. And so in this sense, we no longer experience dukkha. So there's many ways to contemplate uh, the disadvantages of cyclic existence. We can contemplate the eight sufferings of human beings in which we develop the determination to be free from this unsatisfactory existence. We can contemplate the six sufferings of cyclic existence that helps us generate a strong wish for liberation. Then we can contemplate the three types of suffering. So I'll just go through these, uh, the first two kind of briefly, and then I'm going to really focus on the three sufferings uh, for the bulk of the talk. So the eight sufferings of human beings... So this is just to help us get a really a better sense of the unsatisfactory conditions of our present ex, of our present situation, and really it's just um, considering all the difficulties we experience as human beings. And so the first is birth. So that's not so pleasant if you've ever seen a live birth. It's not so pleasant for either person involved, <laughs> actually. Um, And then there's aging, and of course that starts the minute that we're born. And then there's sickness that comes, and then death. And then we get separated from what we like, and we often have to work with and experience things that we don't like at all. Problems come, we're not looking forward to them, we don't even know they're around the corner, and then boom, there they are. We also have difficulty obtaining the things that we like, even though we try so hard to get them. 
And then finally, the eighth one is that we have this body and mind under the control of these disturbing attitudes and karma. And so when Venerable talks about these eight, she says that actually these are all about, when we renounce this, it's all about um, finding compassion for ourselves and wanting ourselves to have a lasting, stable Dharma happiness. And then there's six sufferings of cyclic existence. And the first one is that there's no certainty, security, or stability in our lives. And if we just think back on uh, our years of living, we can see how this is true. Um, from childhood on up, from our earliest memories, actually. And it's interesting how we work with that one. Instead of kind of accepting that, we keep trying to manipulate everything that comes into our purview so that we can try to get some kind of mm, certainty. And, you know, it comes for a few minutes and then, boom, you know, off again. The other thing is that we're never satisfied with what we have, with what we do, or who we are. We always want more and better. So this dissatisfaction really mm, is something that mm, is with us. And I don't know about you, but when I think about this one, I think in terms of no matter what I did in my life, when it was all said and done or, you know, something was finished and I kind of sat back and reflected, there was always, mm, like, still a hole inside, still something that wasn't mm, satisfactory yet. Um, No matter what I did, no matter what it was, there was still something lacking. The third point in these six sufferings is that we die repeatedly in one life after another. I mean, if you just start thinking for a minute about an existence where that wouldn't be um, something that would be in our future. It's really hard to even wrap the brain around that, you know? But that's what we're talking about when we talk about liberation, you know? So we take rebirth repeatedly without choice. Of course, that's a scary one. Yeah. Without choice. And we change status repeatedly. Sometimes we're rich, sometimes we're poor, sometimes we're respected, sometimes we're treated badly. And we can see that even in just this life. You know, having enough money, not having enough money, worrying about, having a place to stay, not having, having mm, good circumstance, not having good. 
So this is continual, actually. And we undergo suffering alone. No one else can experience it for us. Now when we think of these really deeply and meditate on them repeatedly over and over again, it's really important to pay attention to the conclusion you get. So if you do these meditations and you end up feeling really hopeless and bummed out, um, this isn't been done properly then. You know, we've let our mind go into a direction uh, that isn't going to be helpful at all for us. So we really want to just see the reality of the situation. And we don't want to stop just with looking at these. We want to go forward to that there is something that we can do about it and there is a method, there is a path that we can tap into. And so now I want to talk a little more in depth about the three types of dukkha. For some reason, I, I like to I like these a lot. So. <laughs> uh. And so um, lots of times these are translated as the three sufferings, but um, like Venerable has taught many times, um, if we just think about suffering when we use that word, we're really just thinking about suffering on a very gross level. And um, we might then say, well, what did the Buddha mean when he said life is suffering? Life's not all suffering. It's a beautiful day. Went out to a nice meal with friends. We had a good time. So what's, what's suffering? So if we just look on the surface we're going to miss many other more subtle layers of this suffering. And if we don't go deeper, then we're not going to really have much oomph or motivation to do something about our experience. We're going to um, get complacent and get distracted and just keep repeating the same thing again and again and again. So we really need to go a lot deeper. And in uh, one of our practices, a Guru Puja, we have a glance meditation on the stages of the path, and this verse really sums up what I'm talking about um, so well. Violently tossed by waves of afflictions and karma, attacked by the sea monsters of the three sufferings, Inspire me to develop an intense determination to be free from the boundless and vicious ocean of samsara. So that's quite a graphic description of what we're dealing with here. So these three types of sufferings, or I'm going to use the word dukkha because unsatisfactoriness is um, really long and it's a tongue twister, so I'll say dukkha. So the first is the dukkha of suffering, or sometimes pain, they translate it as. The second is the dukkha of change. And the third is a pervasive dukkha of conditioning. So the dukkha of suffering or pain refers to the feeling of unhappiness and uh, the pain that mm, that brings. 
Um, so it can be physical or mental, so like a headache, for example. And so this is kind of the gross layer. So animals recognize this kind of suffering and like us want to be free from it, certainly. And um, because of this kind of uh, experience and discomfort, then they and us, we engage in many activities to try to eliminate these uh, sufferings. The dukkha of change refers to feelings of, uh, one way to describe it is tainted happiness. It's happiness derived from disturbing emotions and attitudes. And so, for example, the one easy one to think about is um, we're sitting very comfortably relaxed, and at first everything seems all right. But after a while, we lose that feeling of happiness. It changes. We become restless and comfortable. And the, the third is pervasive dukkha of conditioning. And this is referring to the uncontrollably reoccurring rebirth that we all have, which is the basis, actually, for experiencing the first two types of dukkha. So if we're going to really generate this determination to be free, to um, gain liberation, one way that we can start working on this right now is to think about how these three types of dukkha that we're constantly experience can strengthen our determination uh, for liberation. So let's go through these a little bit and make some examples. So the first one, the dukkha of pain. So if we focus on pain and the unhappiness that that pain uh, brings. Uh, we all want that to be gone. We don't want to experience it. So I was thinking about the example of um, most of us have experienced pain and unhappiness in the dentist chair. That's kind of a common, it's not so pleasant, huh? Yeah. So when I'm sitting in the dentist chair and I'm experiencing the pain of, let's say, drilling, <laughs> so... Do I actually have renunciation of that? Is that my state of mind? What actually is my state of mind? What are we feeling when we're in that chair? I think for most of it, it most of us, it's probably fear. The pain that we're feeling, we usually exaggerate it. And we're quite anxious. And so if we think in terms of renunciation or liberation, we're focused on the pain of the drilling. We would like it to be finished. We'd like our suffering from that pain to be finished. We've had enough of it. And here's the point that we really have to work with our minds. We're confident that we can work with our mind to get rid of it. Yeah. So how can we do that? So we can understand that we can get rid of the pain simply by waiting it out. So we're not going to be sitting in the dentist chair for the rest of our life, which is good news. <laughs> yeah? So impermanence here is operating, isn't it? So at some point, that drilling is going to end. So we could just make this determination that we're going to bear it. So that's one way. And with that, we can be calm and confident you know, if we remain calm, if we don't freak out, and we don't tense up, 
that it will be finished and then the pain will be gone. So for some of us, some of our minds, that one, you know, would work. The other way is we can start changing our attitude toward the pain. So this one is talking about changing uh, adverse circumstances into positive ones. And so we could think of the suffering of all the people who are being tortured right now in the world, for example. And what I'm experiencing really isn't anything compared to that. So that I could be quite confident that I can think like this, remain calm, and I wouldn't suffer so much from this pain. The pain will be there, but it's not so much of a big deal now, because I've put it in kind of context, put it in perspective. So here, what are we renouncing? Where the pain, the pain is going to be there, and I understand it. It's going to end after a short period of time. It's impermanent. But here, what I'm really renouncing is the fear and the mental suffering and all the things that are accompanying my experience of being in the dental chair and making it, in my mind, like torture. Hmm? So when we can wrap our minds around this way of looking at uh, a painful situation, then that can change the situation a whole lot. And when I think about this way of working with the mind, I always think about the story of Lama Yeshi when he was uh, in the hospital in L.A. and he was and he died there. And so he was in intensive care. He had tubes, you know, and monitors everywhere. Um, and every time somebody came into the room, came by his bedside, he immediately started asking them how they're doing, how they are how their day is going. And he did that right up to the moment when the nurse came in because his heart was uh, in a not a good rhythm and she was checking on him and he said, how are you doing, dear? Are you in pain? And those were his last words that he spoke. So totally focused outside of his own experience internally. So you change the whole situation into thinking of the suffering of others. And so what is underlying the way that he's dealing with sickness is renunciation. He renounced actually the tension and mental pain of that entire situation with regard to both himself and everybody else who was involved actually. And so I think, you know, we can tell when we're around people that have worked with their mind in this way that it's not pretending, you know, they're not saying, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, and inside, you know, they're, you know, screaming or something. It's, it's not that. It's that they have this very clear-headed um, belief, a type of confidence, actually, that clears away this fear and this discomfort, And so, we, you know, we have to train ourselves to actually believe that this is possible. And if you're doubting this, then I don't know what we would do with thinking that we could become Buddhas. This is 
a much lower level of working with the mind, actually. And we have um, many examples in this present, you know, our present experience of people who have died like that. So I think it's something pretty important to kind of um, start working with internally from our own side, you know, with any time of type of pain we have, to start working with that with our mind. Mm-hmm. And of course, the more familiar we are with the whole practice of renunciation and also compassion, of course, that comes in here, then it starts coming automatically. And that's how, you know, people that have mm, been on the path for a long time, when their death comes, no matter what the circumstance, it's like they're not really a part of all of that discomfort, all of that pain. They're not kind of with that. They've renounced it. They've given that up. So now we'll look at the second type of dukkha, the dukkha of change. So our ordinary happiness is a form of suffering. So this is referring to the fact that our ordinary happiness never lasts. It's never satisfying. We never have enough. Changes into pain and unhappiness. And so we can take anything, you know, ice cream, you know, Boy, I could be happy when I have ice cream. Now, if there was happiness in that ice cream, the more we ate, of course, the happier we would get. And what happens? You know, the more we eat, the more we want to start spitting up. (laughs) We're not happy anymore. (laughs) Yeah. So when that, so we, you know, but our mind is like, ooh, there's that thing. Mm." And we eat and eat and eat. And then what happens often, especially something we're really attached to, when we get to that point where no more, or we start feeling, ugh, we get frustrated. You know, we have this this unhappiness, this mm, unsatisfactoriness, you know. Um, And our mood changes, doesn't it? We're not satisfied. So how do we practice with this one? I think it's very important with all these, actually, that we really set our motivation to begin with. I am determined to be free from this. I am determined to be free of this. So what would that mean in this case? Does it mean that we never want to be happy again? Giving up my happiness because it's unsatisfying? Well, that obviously wouldn't uh, be in accord with the Buddhist view at all. So what would we do instead? Well, we have to remind ourselves that ordinary happiness is going to end. And so we accept that. We don't exaggerate it. So we can think, well, I will enjoy it for what it is. What it is is ordinary happiness, and it's not going to last. So I'm not frustrated because I know it's going to end. So here's an example. So many times in my life I would plan to go on a vacation. Spend a lot of time planning, daydreaming about it, building in my mind what it's going to look like, what the experience is going to be, 
you know, surf on the web to see the pictures of where it is and get those pictures in my mind and then place myself in there and then think about, you know, how wonderful it's going to be, how happy I'm going to be, how I can't wait to go. Then what? Then we go on the trip and often it doesn't even remotely match <laughs> what we built in our head. Yeah. So, you know, this is just a good example of it's really good to identify what we expect to get from these things. And I think it's so automatic that we don't even catch what we're building up, all this expectation. You know, and it can be from the simplest thing to the next meal, the expectation for that, all the way up to, you know, some big huge life change or, you know, getting married or something, you know. So often we're uh, we're unsatisfied because we what we expected is not being fulfilled at all. But what we expected is impossible. It's impossible. And so, if I train myself not to expect the impossible, then I could be satisfied with whatever does actually happen as things just unfold. Mm -hmm. And so this is accepting reality. And you know, I don't know about you, but lots of times, especially if I'm anxious about something, I build it in my mind to try and soothe my anxiety. And often that's when I am the most unsatisfied and the most distressed because it's so way out of whack to what actually is happening. So... We start working with our mind to enjoy the visit, enjoy the meal, enjoy the intimacy we have now. But we are clear about it's not going to eliminate my unhappiness forever. It's not going to um, eliminate my hunger. It's not going to eliminate my loneliness or whatever, whatever I have. So it's just really training ourselves to get a really balanced view. And there's a lot of pushback against that, I think, because our self-centered attitude doesn't want us to train in this, because if we train in this well, self-centered attitude loses its job. <laughs> so it doesn't want. It's holding on very tight to these things. So when we think about somebody else's problems with ordinary happiness, we see somebody else so really ecstatic about something. And then again, we use this clear-minded, balanced state. So we realize that their happiness is not going to satisfy them. We can see oftentimes that the person is expecting too much from whatever it is. And so we can recognize that as a problem. It's not that we don't want them to be happy, though. What we're focusing on is their way of experiencing this happiness. 
So it's really important to make this differentiation between how they're going about looking at happiness and what they're actually going to experience. So we want to keep our compassion going and we want people to have happiness. But we also want to keep kind of a balanced view about how the happiness is being experienced. So we can rejoice in their happiness, but understand realistically the shortcomings, and then we can have compassion for that also. Because it's only worldly happiness, ordinary happiness. So now the deepest form of suffering, which uh, Buddha pointed out, which is really the true dukkha, is what's known as this pervasive dukkha of conditioning. So again, this is re- uh, referring to this uncontrollable uh, rebirth that we have, which is again the basis for experiencing the first two types of dukkha. So we're going to continue to have a body that is in one form or another, and is going to have go and is going to have to go through the whole process of being born, being a baby, have to learn everything all over again, getting sick getting injured very easily, getting old, and then dying. We're going to continue to have a mind that in one way or another is going to be confused. It's going to make a lot of projections, all sorts of confused thoughts. It's always going to be going up and down with moods, going to be in relationships that are never going to be satisfying, always going to have lots of complications. We're not going to get what we like, what we want. We're going to be parted from the things that we like, that we have. We're going to meet many things that we don't like. We're going to get frustrated. We don't get what we want even when we try very hard to get it. There's no certainty, not only about future lives, there's no certainty about what we're really going to feel like in the next moment, if we look at our mind for any length of time. So when I'm saying all of these things, it's really helpful, I think, to think about what your mind is doing with this. When I listen to this stuff or I read it, I can feel myself distancing from it. It's like, you know, I don't want to hear it's very interesting. Or, or I kind of start taking a nosedive into, you know, feeling kind of hopeless about it. It's like, oh. So this whole balance sensitivity piece with what comes into our mind and how we keep it in context, how we keep it in perspective, that when I'm reading this and listening to this, I keep a hold of But there's a method to get away from this. There's a path that will bring satisfaction, that will bring true relief from all of this. We have to keep that in mind as we're listening to this so that we can keep ourselves in a balanced place. So... When we think about all of these things, the conclusion we come to is, I had enough of this. 
I'm done. I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be free from this. And I think if we really meditate on this, there's also an element while we're living this ordinary life and experiencing these sufferings, there's actually an element of kind of boredom. Hmm. Like, here we go again. I have done this so many times, just in this life, you know. Try to keep my mind steady and even and, you know, something and I get all wigged out and there I go again, you know. It's like, I am so bored of this. I don't want to do this anymore. Hmm? It's like we're no longer fascinated (laughs) because we don't exaggerate uh, like we used to. Hmm? And we don't distract like we used to. And I think that's why there's so much distraction is because when we start getting a little picture of this, it's like, uh uh-oh, it's uh-oh, so, you know, i got to get busy, or i got to get another new thing, or i got to, you know, find someone new, or do something, travel something. i got to get going here. Because if we sit with this, it's not very comfortable. And so then we have to confront this poor quality happiness that we're so acclimated to. We have to start looking at all those that have gone before us that have put this down and have built something else. They've built something else. And when we're in their presence, we feel the power of that. We see it. And so our task is to bring that into our own hearts and see that we also have the same potential. So, when we're working with renunciation, this is hard. This is not an easy thing. This is not so simple. So, And of course, why it's, why it's not so easy is because we're focused on the drawbacks of what we're actually experiencing all the time. You know, that kind of mm, jars the mind. It jars the mind. It really colors our emotions very strongly and our experience of life. But the way to train in renunciation or in liberation is to train ourselves with the first thought. We think, ah, dukkha, ah, suffering. So we see somebody, we might feel a little attraction, and then we think dukkha. (laughs) Think dukkha. Get a new job and you think, ah, unsatisfactory. No matter what happens. But if we, you know, so we, to do that, to get really fresh and clear with what this is here, because we're so habituated to it, we're so pulled in every direction, that we have to apply something that is forceful enough to keep us awake to what, is, what this is, what we're experiencing. 
But if we go too far with that, then we start getting a negative attitude about life. You know, it's like pew. And especially about people, it's like, ugh. You know, when I interact with you and then all of this unsatisfactory stuff comes up and I don't want to talk to you anymore. I don't want to talk to people anymore. I don't want to be around this anymore, you know. So we have to be really careful how we work with this. So we want to see the reality of what this is and make it fresh enough that we don't get lost. Because how many times a day do we get lost? How many times a day? I don't know about you, but I can't even count the times. I can't even count the times. So we need to bring something else into our practice so that we can see the three types of dukkha very clearly all the time. But we also need to infuse our mind with some joy. And so what can we use? What, what do we use? Here's where we have to use the joy of our potential, our Buddha nature and everybody else's Buddha nature. So we have to keep both of those in our mind all the time. So if for renunciation I'm confident that I can get rid of the dukkha and I'm going to do something about it and it is possible to be rid of it, then that would make us pretty happy, wouldn't it? I mean, if we can open to that, yeah. But when we're working with renunciation we act- and we actually succeed and we're not attracted to the things in our ordinary existence, we have to be very careful to keep our heart open and not mix up the dukkha with the person or with ourselves. And I think that's really a deep, strong, very, uh, very deep practice. I don't think that's so easy. That we can watch our mind and not get attached to things, not get sucked in, you know, to whatever it is, be it aversion or attachment, and yet at the same time keep this really uplifted heart joy going, looking at everybody and seeing everybody's Buddha potential, seeing everybody's deep potential. I don't, I don't know, does that seem easy to you? <laughs> that doesn't seem easy to me. <laughs> hmm? So I think this is what we have to kind of hmm, really practice, really work with um, our state of affairs here. And I think that to be able to identify when we're getting sucked into the attachments or mm, getting averse with things, when we can start identifying the first energy that goes on when that happens, you know? Like, um, mm, I want that. That expectation, oh, you know? And, And to continually bring ourselves back from that and look at the reality of what it is. This is not going to be 
lasting happiness. This is very ordinary. It's very low level. And again, just when I said that, you know, my mind doesn't want to really do that so much. So we have to familiarize. We have to work with this over and over and over and then again and then again and now some more to train ourselves. And if we don't keep this joy in the mind when we're working with this, then, you know, we get the thought of, well, just leave me alone. I'm going to go to my cave and meditate and, you know, you know just be with myself. And, of course, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. So the other thing that we can bring into this is to start training ourselves to deal with everybody, including ourselves, as an individual mental continuum. No beginning and no end. And then what is imputed on that? To think of it that way. It's not me with the three types of suffering right here now. It's there's this mental continuum that goes through time and space, beginningless, endless, that has some sufferings that come up, that has some joy. So when we start doing that, we start opening up our view. Mm. We get a much broader picture of what, and I think a more realistic picture of what actually is going on. And we start opening, it's easier than to open to the possibilities, I think. And then to it, if we look at it that way, then we can um, remind ourselves of the purity of the mental continuum and the possibility of getting rid of all the emotional obscurations and the cognitive obscurations and to get rid of this suffering. But we have to get out of this solid me thing. We have to kind of look at everybody as kind of this continuum, this mind stream that's, you know, continuing, that just keeps going. And we really, then we have a much larger perspective. And so then I think, too, the emotions that we feel don't get so confused when we think in terms of everybody's carrying these continuums, these mental continuums that are going and have been coming and going since beginning this time. And so the beauty of the Lam Rim is that we practice the stages uh, sequentially. So I practice and bring the experience of the initial scope into myself, and this becomes the basis then for practicing the middle scope. Then having an experiential understanding of the middle scope is so important because to generate a mind of compassion, we have to know what it is built upon. And it is built upon this clear-minded renunciation. 
this clear-minded determination to be free from all the three types of suffering. And if we don't have a strong renunciation, a strong wish for liberation, then our compassion is very tainted uh, with all of the disturbing attitudes, all of the all of the afflictions um, to such a degree, I think, that we have difficulty even progressing. So even though we don't like to really look at these sufferings, we don't like to look at the disadvantage of what we have here. If we don't, and if we don't get some sense of renunciation, some sense of really heartfelt, I want to get out of this, then when we start working on our compassion, it's not very strong and stable, clear. It's quite messy, actually. And then not so good, so easy to progress. Okay. We've used our time. That went lickety-split quick. <laughs> Due to this merit may we soon Attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha That we may be able to liberate All sentient beings from their suffering May that precious body mine Not yet born arise and grow May that born have no decline But increase forever